Hi, everybody. I'm Aaron Solomon, and welcome to the Next Level Podcast. Do we have a guest for you today? I'm partially inclined to end the podcast right here, so you'll never know who it was, but I'm not going to do that to you because I like you all. We have Joshua Browder with us today, the Joshua Browder. Joshua Browder, who started a company called Do Not Pay. Joshua Browder, who is the most famous college dropout since Kanye West, well, since the album. We've got him here with us today. Josh, it's great to talk to you. How are you? Thank you so much for having me. It's great to talk to you too. Thank you very much for coming. So I want you to tell our audience about Do Not Pay, which, as you know, is probably my favorite legal startup ever. Um, and then I've got a question for you about why you started Do Not Pay. So if someone's never heard of it, which I can't imagine that people have never heard of it in mid-2021, what is Do Not Pay? So I like to think of Do Not Pay as the world's first robot lawyer. Many lawyers disagree with that, but that's what I think. And what that means is we help ordinary consumers fight back against corporations and the government across over 200 areas of consumer rights. It started with parking tickets five years ago and has since expanded to a vast array of disputes, including canceling subscriptions, fighting bank fees, getting refunds, all of the areas where the average person is ripped off. It started with parking tickets because as a teenager living in London, you accumulated a few, didn't you? That, that's right. I was a terrible driver and I probably got about 30 parking tickets um, over the course of my career in London. And I couldn't afford to pay these expensive tickets. And so what I learned in life is remarkable is if you know the right things to say, you can save a lot of money and time. Um, but unfortunately, um, the only way to do that is to hire a lawyer. And I couldn't afford that. So I had to find out, um, trawl through these government documents and get the tickets dismissed myself which is an amazing way to begin a company. And by the way, I love the fact that you call this the world's first robot lawyer, and here's why. I know you well enough to know that you'd love to call Do Not Pay the world's first robot lawyer because you know how many people in the legal industry, especially quote unquote legal innovation people, <laughs> hate the term robot lawyer. So here's my question. What's wrong with people in the law and why does the law suck the sense of humor out of so many people? It's a tough one, isn't it? I, I think it is. And I think it should be um, very deterministic. You have these rules. Um, it should be very obvious whether people win or whether, whether they lose. But unfortunately, there are all these kind of um, gatekeepers to actually getting access to your rights, the lawyers, and they charge hundreds of dollars an hour or 50% of the cost of my parking ticket back in London. And that's just not right. And it's created a system that's pay to play where the people with the most money can have a better outcome. And so I think that's why a lot of people uh, don't like lawyers. And then in terms of why um, lawyers don't like me, um, the vast majority of them um, do like me, but some of them uh, are obviously making a lot of money in this racket, and so they want it to continue. Now, that, I think calling it a racket is extremely well said. Now, you've touched on a couple of things that are so important for somebody doing a startup. Now, you've been based in San Francisco, Silicon Valley for a while, which in some ways, and we'll talk about this today too, is or was the epicenter of these things in the world but you managed to build something that scales. So where do you think kind of the points of disconnect are 
when somebody identifies a problem that you did and as you did, and then tries to build out a company because you've been very successful in so far in identifying your problem and getting your solution to scale to its depth. So where do you think that disconnect is for a lot of people who start a company? In terms of why they're not successful? Yeah, in terms of why they're not successful or why they can't make the solution as large as the problem is, which you have. I think, unfortunately, a lot of people start companies for the wrong reasons. I started the company Do Not Pay because I had a personal problem. And also, I'm, I'm like, I live and breathe Do Not Pay. Like, I hate authority, as you might be able to tell from the podcast. And also, I'm the type of person to wait on hold for four hours just to get a $20 refund. So I think there's like this strong connection, like a founder market fit. But a lot of people just start companies just to make a quick buck or um, because they think that this is a hot area to start a company in. And they're not really solving a real problem in the world. And I like to say, if you solve your own problem, at least you've got one customer yourself. And that's been true for Do Not Pay. Um, and I think, uh, unfortunately, it's not true for a lot of other businesses where they're just trying to chase a market trend, um, despite them having no passion about the idea and also no idea about if it's actually a worthwhile solution. I personally think that happened a lot in the legal space, both with people looking to build companies and also for investors. The problem is, is that when mercenary capital comes in, thinking, as you said exactly right now, hey, this is a great place to make a few bucks really quickly, everybody's disappointed. So from where Do Not Pay is today, what do you see as kind of the natural evolution of the company over the next couple of years? Because I do see on LinkedIn, you say things like, we're going to hit this many users by this time, and that's great. What's your vision for how this plays out? I see Do Not Pay as a global problem. We have um, homeless people who get parking tickets because um, they live in their cars, unfortunately. And we have these rich VCs who use Do Not Pay to cancel their um, $3,000 a year expensive Equinox gym memberships. And so unfortunately, even uh, rich people and poor people, it's the one thing everyone can agree on that we hate being ripped off. And so my goal is in the next 10 years to have 100 million subscribers for Do Not Pay. I think we'll achieve that from a US audience, but also help achieve that from a global audience where we really want to start expanding to other countries um, in earnest. Um, and we're also um, trying to help small businesses. So it's not just about pure consumer play. We're going a bit up market and helping the 30 million small businesses in the US uh, defend themselves from frivolous lawsuits also. Well, they definitely need the help. So then how do you see this playing out in that, you know, if you were able to craft the eventual postmortem on do not pay, is there ever a postmortem? Does the company ever go away or does it become, you know, does it go on forever or does it become something, you know, massive like Apple or Google? Does somebody one day acquire it? I ask this question because, you know, I know from your foundation of the company that you've had a clear vision for what you wanted it to be all along. Can do not pay, stay independent forever. Uh, so at least at the moment we're, we're profitable and the only limit is um, our, our motivation to keep it going. And we have unlimited motivation to build this into um, a, a large public company. I think 
there's this company Intuit, which helps um, all Americans with their taxes. Yep. We want to be uh, the general counsel for the consumer uh, as a kind of parallel example. And I think people need it. These big companies have these teams of lawyers like trying to get their best interests. Um, the consumer deserves the same. So I'm in it for the next at least 10 years um, and keep it as a strong independent company. I'm not trying to like flip it and sell it in six months. No, because I think you could have already done that if that was your intention. Do not pace that a lot of attention. The vast majority of it, in my opinion, has been positive, And I think it's got a lot of value. The brand does, certainly. Yeah, and I think um, it's a great week for legal tech, like LegalZoom going public uh, this week at $5 billion plus valuation. And so I think people are starting to recognize that you need more solutions. LegalZoom is great at helping enterprises, but we want to help the consumer. Again, I think it's just like such a lofty goal and such an admirable thing. And it's amazing how quickly now, you know, tell people who don't know you, you didn't start this company like at 55, right? How old were you when you started Do Not Pay? Uh, I was only 17 um, and I've, I'm now 24. So I've been at it for many years now. <laughs> that is very well said. Many years, a very good, uh, very good chunk of your life. Now, around the same time, you ended up moving to San Francisco and you were a student at Stanford University, correct? Yes. And then you joined one of two exoduses that I want to talk about today. And the first is an exodus from college, as I mentioned during our lead in. So you either dropped out or, as I think a lot of people are saying these days, stopped out. I've heard that one many times from Stanford to launch the business, correct? That's right. Um, I was there for three years. I basically had like very few credits to go to get my degree. Um, and I knew everyone, so I wasn't really getting that much value from the classes. And I thought, do not pay just taking up all my time. I had to make a quick decision. Now, you also had an involvement in something that I had an involvement a few years before, which is the Peter Thiel's Thiel Fellowship. Um, I noticed from something else that you've started fairly recently, which is an investment fund that you've remained involved with some of those folks. So what was your experience around being awarded a Teal Fellowship and how did it progress from there? And maybe explain what a Teal Fellowship is for those who haven't heard of it outside that kind of ring of the Valley and innovation. Yes, yeah, so the Teal Fellowship is where uh, Peter Teal pays you $100,000, which used to be a lot of money since the hyperinflation. <laughs> it's, it's not that much money anymore. Uh, it's still a lot of money um, to drop out and um, it's kind of like a, a buffer so that when you drop out, you can kind of take care of yourself and you don't have to worry about getting a job so that you can create value in the world. And the money is nice, but the, the most inspiring thing is the people. Every year, it's 20 of the smartest, most inspiring young people building great companies like Dylan Field from Figma um, or um, Embark Trucks, which is like a self-driving truck company. And so... Um, having this group of people that don't just want to work for, that don't want to like get a job at facebook but actually want to build big companies in the world is is the number one reason why i did it and i've st stayed in touch with them um, i'm still part of it i go to the dinners every month and the zoom meetings and um i've also invested in a few of them as well it's it's a great place to invest in so i want definitely want to talk about that so you know you would think if you didn't if someone didn't know you and they listened to the podcast so far 
this is a busy 24 year old guy who spent seven years of his life building this business. But you've recently started your own fund called Browder Capital, correct? That's right. So, and am I mistaken, but haven't you already gone through several investments in raising another fund? Yeah, that's right. So I've raised two funds now, 2.5 million each, and I've done 36 investments so far. Um, and so I, I, the origin story of that is I got this $100,000 and um, I, was, I lived the do not pay lifestyle. It's not like I had any, have any real lifestyle expenses. I just like work at the office all day. That's basically what I do. And so when I got the money, I thought the best use of the money is to invest it. And all my friends who are maybe a few years earlier than me starting new companies were asking me for advice. They were saying, can you help me design the pitch deck or introduce uh, me to your investors, things like that. And I was doing that for a while. And I thought, wait a minute, these companies are like very successful. Why am I not investing as well? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So I, I invested 100K. That did really well. And it got me a track record to raise a fund and then a second fund. It's, it's fantastic. So, you know, you did this in Northern California and I've seen you write and talk about the fact that you are going to be part of this California exodus. So is that still the plan that you're planning on leaving the San Francisco area? I'm definitely leaving San Francisco. I haven't decided on uh, whether it will be Palo Alto or Miami. Uh, but San Francisco is even worse than California. They have all these additional taxes that are just unique at the city level. Um, for example, they, they uh, tax 0.5% of all revenue in San Francisco. Which is unbelievable. And, and one would think, if you're looking at it from the outside, I mean, I know San Francisco pretty well. San Francisco has changed so dramatically, even over the past decade, and some say even over the past two or three years. Uh, do you think that the place isn't salvageable? Because the reality is when people like you leave the city, as many, many have over the past two years, you're taking an entire brain trust out of the ecosystem. I think you're seeing this with a lot of companies. Even Stripe is um, rumored to be moving office because of this ridiculous revenue tax. And um, it, it's not just about the money, it hinders innovation. There are a lot of companies like Do Not Pay and Stripe where we're not making uh, money in some instances. So for example, we help consumers pay their DMV clean air fees just as a convenience. You can pay it through Do Not Pay rather than mail a check to um, Denver or wherever the DMV office is in each state. And San Francisco, well, and Do Not Pay doesn't charge any money on top of that. But San Francisco say that if we charge a consumer $200 to pay to um, Colorado DMV, they want 0.5% of that. So it's not just about the money, it hinders innovation. And it has led to a large exodus of people, not just to Miami, but also to Palo Alto, um, Los Angeles, where you're, a lot of these creative companies are basing themselves now. And so I think San Francisco will still be important as a legacy city, but it's lost its kind of heyday. That makes so much sense. I, I really like the way you frame that. And people like you weren't looking to leave the city. There are a lot of people who came from all over the world and developed really fast, but also really deep roots in the city. But uh, it became in some ways, as you've said, a city that's, uh, that's becoming hard to love. I want to talk a little bit more about Brighter Capital. So tell me about kind of if what your multiple investment theses are. It's great that you have the inside track, 
when you have people that you know and you're able to advise them and see the kind of things that they're building. But is there a specific type of company that you're looking for, only specific areas? I focus entirely on the people. Um, I think that the only difference between a successful and fail, failed company at the early stage um, is the founders behind it. Um, I think as you get later and later on, it becomes more about the market. But initially, I'm a people-focused investor. Um, the, the only place I stay away from as a rule is anything that can conflict with do not pay, which is actually a lot of things. We have 200 products. So kind of these fintech companies or these other legal tech consumer companies, I stay away from. But beyond that, um, I'm open to anything. My most successful uh, investment so far has been a computer chip company. Um, and then my second most successful investment has been an enterprise SaaS company. So I do the whole range. So when you were growing up in London, is this what you imagined your future would be? Or did you have something else in mind? Um, I, I didn't imagine this. I always loved engineering. Um, so I was always thinking that maybe I'd be an engineer or tinker on some small projects. Um, but I would never imagine that I'd be trying to replace lawyers and also investing on the side. Um, I think it's great um, era to be alive where you can build something without anyone's permission. Um, in the past, you had to like work your way up the ranks of a large corporation to have an impact, but now you can just type a few lines of code and help people appeal their parking tickets and do what you want as long as it's within the law. Now, you've been exposed to so many amazing young founders from being in San Francisco and Stanford, the Teal Fellowship, et cetera. One of the things that I really believe is that the technological age that we're living in, the innovation age, the new innovation age, is really making age itself in people so much less relevant. So you work with a lot of young people, but you also see founders who are like in their 40s and 50s and beyond. I've certainly um, invested in, in older founders as well. I think um, older founders have an additional benefit of experience, um, but the young people, they believe anything is possible, which is slightly rarer in older people. So for example, um, I spoke to some founders my age who've just raised a hundred million for this uh, mortgage startup. Um, and you would think that most people wouldn't have the guts to tr even try that but the fact that they did it and then it worked just goes to show how much courage young founders have and that's why i think young people are successful because they have more courage they're not so jaded that, i i would generally agree with that the thing is i've seen a lot of older people and i'll consider myself in that very old people group as well who just have seen so many things and we've been disillusioned by so many things as you said in the beginning of the podcast you know, you're willing to fight against anything. And so are some of us. And honestly, we just don't care anymore. This is even before the pandemic. We believe in anything as well, because we've also seen that anything is possible. But I agree 100% that there are so many young founders who were raised in a way that they didn't see, they didn't perceive any barriers. So was that your feeling growing up in London? Because I've lived in London. I know the city pretty well. But London really isn't, to me at least, a city where you're raised to believe that anything is possible, is it? Do you think it is for the average kid in London today? Unfortunately not. I completely agree with you. Um, like the most successful recent company to go public in, in the UK, I think, is Deliveroo. Um, and Deliveroo is like worth... Uh, 
just under 10 billion. Um, the most successful private company in the US is Stripe, which is uh, 150 billion going on 1 trillion in the next few years. And so I think that just gives an idea as to the scale of the ambition in the US versus the UK. That's, that's something extremely interesting. So one of the benefits of San Francisco, getting back to that point, is that San Francisco and the Valley has been such a magnet for international founders. Even before they found companies, they go and they kind of soak in the ethos of the Valley. Uh, now, Miami, as an example, has a massive population from you know, Central and South America, and that's great. But I don't think that places like Austin, which is one of the places where people kind of like emigrated to from the Valley is quite as diverse as that. Do you, do you think that that's an important thing that's made San Francisco successful? Is that huge influx of international potential founders? I think so. Um, the most successful founders I know are mainly international um, from the UK, Brazil, all of these countries because they feel like they have something to prove. Um, I think Sam, I think Stanford, I mean, San Francisco has been sucking up talent from Stanford. It used to be the case that Silicon Valley was like um, Menlo Park, Stanford, San Jose, Los Altos. And I think between 2010 and uh, 2020, everyone shifted up to San Francisco. But now you're seeing a reversal of that where people are going back to Stanford or Palo Alto. Um, so I think the international people will still come, but they'll come to the Silicon Valley South version rather than San Francisco. And my last question on this is, do you think the pandemic has changed this? In other words, have your dealings with founders from all over the world, do they feel more committed to staying in places like the United States and San Francisco through the pandemic? Or maybe has it had them do a reverse brain chain and return to places like Stockholm or Berlin or Delhi or Sydney or wherever? I think um, I see the international founders who are based outside the US, I see them still penalized. And so I think a lot of people still come to the US. Um, the pandemic has made it a lot harder because of travel restrictions um, with Europe and things like that. But um, I think it will return. Um, there's nothing like meeting someone in person. Um, I, I, I'm so fed up with the Zoom calls that uh, I'm trying to go back to in person as much as possible now. That makes a lot of sense. So I knew you for about a couple of years. And then I remember one day when I was living in Berlin and it was a pretty eventful day because somebody's dad was in the news a lot that day. And I was actually in the airport. I was in Charles de Gaulle airport in Paris. And I remember like contacting you that day and saying, wait a second, is your dad Bill Browder? And of course you said that he was. So the reason I bring this up is because there must've been extra pressure on you growing up that there was such a high bar set for your success. Did you feel that that was the case growing up in, in a family that had achieved so much or were you pretty much free to just do whatever you want, be an engineer, not be an engineer, be an entrepreneur? I think my family's been very supportive and they would be happy if I did anything. And so there was no pressure from them, but internally, as you said, there was this huge pressure to do something meaningful with my life because um, my grandfather like did a lot and my father did uh, a lot, but the biggest impact that my family had on me is they taught me that um, you, you don't have to be afraid of anything. Um, unfortunately, as I was growing up, I saw um, the consequences of my father, who um, is a human rights activist and fighting the Russian mafia. I saw all the terrible things that the Russian mafia does. Um, 
And so uh, later in my life, when I'd have like minor challenges, like lawyers saying that I was doing unauthorized practice of law or people making like small threats, I put it all into perspective and realized it could be a lot worse and I shouldn't be afraid of anything. Joshua, this is like, honestly, I, we, you and I could talk as we have about so many more things, but I think that's really a perfect way to wrap things up. I think you framed your experience so well. And anybody who wants to start something and is afraid of the challenge should really listen to your words of the last couple of minutes because there's truly nothing to be afraid of. Now, let me ask you this. If there is an amazing founder who listens to this, an amazing founder in our ecosystem, and they'd like to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do it? Uh, Twitter. Um, I'm Joshua Browder on Twitter. I'm at jbrowder1. Um, or um, shameless promotion, subscribe to do donotpay.com. Absolutely. Subscribe to do not pay.com. And believe me, we're going to promote the podcast and it's going to say in the header, subscribe to do not pay.com because you are doing people a massive service. Joshua, it's awesome to catch up. Thank you infinitely for joining me today. Thank you so much. Bye. -bye. Take care. Bye.